Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are rich in mercy and you're rich in love. And that no matter what we experience on this side of heaven, on these days that we live here under the sun, we can put our lives in your hands and receive everything as a gift from you, knowing that what we experience here is just a training ground for life in eternity with you. Thank you for the 10,000 reasons that our hearts can find to be grateful and thankful and come before you in worship and praise this morning. We ask that you'd speak to us through your word, that you would meet us through your spirit, and that you would send us out today refreshed, renewed, washed clean from our sin to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a lost and a hurting world. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, my name is Kurt. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I want to add my welcome to you this morning, especially if you are visiting with us both here in person or online. It is an honor to be with you today. We'd love to have a chance to get to know you better. Uh, So you can do that by hanging out after the service is over, have some refreshments, let us meet you in the lobby. Uh, Or if you're online, you can go to our website and check out a connect card there, as Jeff said earlier. Uh, Or you can reach out to us and let us know if there's some way that we can connect with you, uh, help you, or uh, any other ways that we can partner with you in life moving ahead. Before we jump into the message today, I do want to uh, just kind of mention that uh, last week we kicked off what we are calling our Family Ministries Campaign. Uh, In our annual celebration two weeks ago, we approved moving forward with expanding our staff and our ministries to have a, a clear focus on family ministry and intergenerational ministry. We've been saying for uh, months now that we feel like our church is at this inflection point and that God is leading us to put our trust in him, that he has a mission and a call for us to make an impact, not only in the lives of children and students, but in the lives of all of God's children. And so in order to do that, uh, to see how we can support that ministry over the coming years, we'd like to be able to hire a full-time associate pastor of family ministries and a permanent family ministry assistant. And to to fund that, to give us kind of a runway over the next three years, we've set the goal of $200,000 in upfront contributions or in monthly pledges over the next two years. And that would allow us to fund these two positions in kind of a decreasing way, 100% the first year, 50% the second year, 25% the third year. And in faith, we believe by that time, God will bring the increase and we will be able to enfold those positions into our regular operating budget every year. In order to do something like this as a church, we believe that it is requiring everyone to support the campaign in whatever ways that they are able. Uh, Together, we believe that God can use us to meet the needs of the mission that he's called us to fulfill. Now, we know that some of us uh, can only contribute a little bit, and some of us can contribute quite a lot, but that's how the Bible says the church operates, right? If each of us simply is willing to commit what we can Putting our trust in God, we believe that through his power that he will bring the increase that's needed and that together we can accomplish more than we ever could have imagined. And so this coming week, you're going to be receiving a more detailed explanation of the campaign and how you can participate. We're going to have uh, some ways of measuring along the way. I don't know if we have that slide that shows the, uh, 
There you go. We have the Family Ministries uh, house, and we're going to have a version of that out in the lobby that we can be watching as the weeks go by. And we're going to continue to roll things out and tell you how you can participate. Uh, this, the campaign is scheduled to go through May 1st, so about six weeks from now. But starting next week, you'll have a physical and a digital pledge card where you can prayerfully consider uh, what an upfront contribution you might make to kick us off, and then what God may lead you to pledge over the next couple years to help support this ministry moving forward. So we're going to ask everyone to use those either physical or digital pledge cards. And uh, as we said, we're going to uh, bring those together. Uh, you can turn them in at any time. Uh, whenever you're ready, you can turn them in. But on Sunday, April 24th, which is the week before the campaign ends, we're going to invite everyone to either bring their cards to worship on Sunday, or if you've turned in a card before then, we will bring it here for you. And we will present those pledges and contributions to God and ask for his blessing over them. So by the following Sunday on May 1st, we should know where we stand and we'll be able to report back to all of you uh, how we've done in the campaign. And as we have made a commitment together, we want to fully fund the campaign before we have a green light to move forward. And so if we've done that, we will celebrate that. And if we haven't, then we'll come back together and say, okay, what does it mean? Where do we go from here? So be praying about this campaign, uh, look for the information coming out this week, and each week moving forward, we will be able to help you figure out more how you can participate. We are continuing our series in Ecclesiastes called Chasing the Wind, where we're going to be moving into chapter 7 today. And at the heart of uh, the Ecclesiastes, or the teacher in English, or Kohelet in the Latin, is that wisdom or that goodness and contentment in life comes only when we can find satisfaction in the life that we actually have today, right? Life is a gift, the teacher tells us, that is meant to be enjoyed. But when we can't enjoy the life we have, we'll never be able to enjoy the life that we want because enjoyment doesn't come from the things of this world or the more that we hope to attain. Enjoyment, he says, comes from the inner person. It comes from the heart when life is seen to be a gift from God. In fact, the more we try and find our heart's fulfillment in the temporary things of this world, he says, the less we're actually able to enjoy them when we find them. But the more we set our hearts on things above, and find our true purpose and fulfillment in the God who created us and the God who loves us, the easier it becomes to actually enjoy the things that God has given us and to find genuine fulfillment in living each day. At the end of chapter 6 in verse 12, he ends with a question that kind of sets up where he wants to go in chapter 7. In verse 12 of chapter 6, he said, for who knows what is good? And that, that word good in Hebrew is tov, and he uses this word good a lot, tov. What is the good life? What is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless or better futile days they pass through like a shadow? That's a tough question, right? It's, it's, it's kind of negative sounding on the surface of it. But what scholars tell us is that this question is not meant to imply that nothing can be known about the good life. It's not that we can't discover anything about the path to find happiness and satisfaction and enjoyment in life. 
The question isn't meant to imply that, that everything is, is just a mystery and nothing can be known. In fact, he says that wisdom tells us that there are some ways of being in this world that are actually better, that are more tov than others. Wisdom, in fact, he had already told us is better than folly. And part of discovering the good life for each one of us is accepting the value of wisdom and learning to apply it to our own lives. So that's what the teacher is seeking to highlight as he moves into chapter 7, where out of the many good things, out of the many tov things that we can look at and that we can consider and that we can enjoy, he says there are some things that are better, there are some things that are more tov. And so in verse 1 of chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 1, he says, a good name is better, is more tov than fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration or sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better, it is more tov to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. See, again here in verses 1 through 6, the teacher is wanting to help us to focus in on the reality of death in our lives, guides us to understand how to pursue the good life in the midst of all of the things that would seek to, to, to garner our attention or to, to gain our favor or to cause us to, to act and pursue. Now, he says, I think we need to keep in mind that as we go through Ecclesiastes, this isn't a linear kind of argument. I think in the Western world, we're com committed to, you know, point A to point B to point C leads to the conclusion of D. That's not how the teacher operates, right? It's more of a a, a cyclical argument, which means he kind of keeps walking around the topic, and each time he takes a different position, he's looking at the same subject from a slightly different angle. And so now again, he's coming back to the topic of death, which he's introduced before, but he's looking at it in a new way. In the previous sections, the teacher has actually used the reality of death to show us the limits of our human wisdom and knowledge. But here, he actually goes so far as to suggest that death can be an incentive to embrace wisdom in life rather than foolishness. We cannot idolize wisdom, he says, but we also should not ignore wisdom's teaching for us. He says death is the destiny of everyone. This is a fact that we all know. It's an undeniable truth, right? The statistics on death are pretty compelling. One out of every one person dies. And the reality of death is part of life in this world. The challenge is that many of us, even though we know that death is part of life, live much of our life trying to avoid the reality and the truth that death is in our pathway, that the ultimate end of where we all go under the sun, this side of heaven, leads to the same place. It's the final destination that we all will arrive at someday. And so this truth should be deeply rooted in our hearts and our perspective about what the meaning and purpose of life in this world is. 
It's part of the wisdom, the teacher says, that a person needs in order to truly discover the good life. Because when we actually see how brief and how precious every moment of this life is, we will begin to take the business of living much more seriously. And so he contrasts these three different, uh, he makes these three different contrasts, and all these things could be considered good. He's not saying that one is bad, he's saying one is better. And so he says frustration or sorrow is better than laughter, and that mourning is better than feasting and pleasure, and that heeding the rebuke of a wise person is better than listening to the song of fools. See, he's not saying that laughter and pleasure and singing are bad things. In fact, in previous sections, he's also said that these two can be seen and be received as gifts from God. But in keeping with his theme of wanting to understand the difference between futility and fulfillment in living and the risk of spending your life chasing after the wind and seeking that which cannot be grasped or controlled, is rather that it's the pursuit of these things as the goal of life that becomes part of a a frivolous and a trivial way of living that he wants us to, to move our focus away from. If the center of your life is laughter and feasting and pleasure and partying and singing, it's simply to set yourself up for disappointment because no one can live an entire life without any sadness and sorrow, because death is ultimately there for everyone. Such a life can only be lived in the denial of the harsher realities that we all know are true about life in this world. If we're hoping to sweep reality under the rug by simply flooding our senses with pleasure and sensation and drowning out the quietness and those reflective moments with busyness and activity so that we don't have to face the deeper darkness that we all face and the reality of sin and brokenness and evil in this world and within our own lives, we're only deceiving ourselves and we're not able to live lives of sober, serious maturity because we're living with the denial of death. So he starts off by saying the day of birth is, of course, the the first defining moment in life. It's the day of celebration. It's the day of optimism. It's It's the day of unlimited human potential. And when our kids are born, we're excited and we have all these hopes and these dreams about the possibilities of what their life can be. Yet also, given the reality of the world that we live in, wisdom should tell us that to live all of life with this mindset that everything is going to be a continually upwardly mobile climb on the social ladder of success is only to set yourself up for failure. Because a life that is truly centered on the reality of the world that we live in, the world that God has created, and the gift of life that he's given us is to recognize that there is also a day when all of that will come crashing down around you. And so in order to focus a person's heart and mind on the good life, wisdom tells us it's better to focus on the day of death as the better of the two. Just as the possession of a good name and a good reputation is better than owning all this expensive, wealthy perfume that smells really good, (laughs) but doesn't necessarily make you happy. You see, the risk, he's saying, is that 
if, in order to be able to celebrate and enjoy the life we have, you have to deny the reality of death and put all the, 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 the pain and the suffering and the difficulty of life in this world in a closet, you'll only find yourself using all of these things in order to deny the harsher realities and the challenges of life in this world. Well, if we face the reality of death face-to-face, head-on, it can help us to focus on the true business of living that God has invited us to experience. You see, when the wise person realizes that life is defined by death as much as it is by birth, and, and that these bookends of our experiences in life limit our creatureliness, it points us to the seriousness and the maturity of living in this world because depth of character becomes the characteristic of the person who lives life within this reality. In the same way that superficiality and immaturity become the marks of a life lived in the denial of death. That's why in verse 5, he says that a wise person will value and heed the the rebuke or the the advice of another wise person, the counsel and the correction, because rather than seeking out the witless and pointless songs and the revelry of fools where you can just ignore the harsh realities of life, we can actually find wisdom and make changes and find choices that lead us to experience the good life. This is all a part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. You might recall in Proverbs 15.31, it says, Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Or Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke strikes deeper into a discerning person than a hundred blows into a fool. You ever feel in your life that you're going along and you're doing what you think you need to do and all of a sudden, you know, life takes a left turn and you feel like God's coming and hitting you overhead with a two by four going, wake up, (laughs) you're not paying attention. You see, the wise person is quick to respond to those times of correction and to get back on track. Whereas the foolish person drowns out the voice of God in our lives and doesn't hear the correction of a wise person who the Holy Spirit might be using to guide us because we, we, we listen to the songs and the partying and the pleasure of life in this world and so we don't have to pay attention to the ways that maybe we need to think about changing and course correcting our life to experience God's goodness that he has for us. See, while laughter and feasting can be gifts from God, making this the focus of our life does nothing to help a person face the harsh realities of life in this world. It adds nothing to the situation except more noise to drown out the wisdom in our lives. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, he says, as we slowly cook ourselves to death in search of pleasure, this too is futility and becomes a waste of time. Now, if we're really honest with ourselves, if we look at our lives and we look at the culture around us, can we not say that the reality is that we are living in an escapist culture? The techno-utopia of the modern world and its promises that we would somehow get better and better and we'd see more and more success and the world would become more and more peaceful and and all of these things through our our modern wisdom and knowledge and, and intuition and technology, it just never happens. In fact, look what's happening in Ukraine today. 
This techno-utopia of the modern world hasn't produced the results that we've hoped for and that we've been promised. In fact, it's, it's more and more left us with a spiritual emptiness that is all too apparent, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of the people around us. And to be able to have an honest conversation about this, at first, though, we'd have to admit that a mistake has been made somewhere along the way. Somehow we've gotten off track. Somehow we've believed a lie. Somehow something that was promised us that we've chosen to believe is amiss. And we have to face the reality that the world we're living in is more life-taking than life-giving. And to admit this reality ultimately means that each of us need to consider how we first need to change. But change is hard. And sometimes we don't want to do that. And so the alternative is is a kind of escapism that fools us into thinking that we can keep on living the way that we're living and simply pretend that somehow, without having to change, without having to do anything different, we're going to get a different result down the road. Isn't that what Einstein said is the definition of insanity? And so we learn to tolerate the emptiness and the futility of our daily lives by running away from the darkness and the pain as quickly as we can. We escape into the world of busyness and activity and work and career. Or in the world of fantasy and entertainment where the heart and the mind no longer have to be engaged and the senses and the appetites can take over and take full reign. Doesn't this describe our lives today? Right? Where the goal is really to shut out the pain and the frustration of this world that we live in. We can do this through binging movies and streaming TV shows and podcasts. Through endless shopping and purchasing more and more items to distract us from the things that we think we need but that never satisfy. Through surfing the internet and YouTube and social media through drugs and alcohol, through a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or that next relationship, through seeking endless entertainment and activity and busyness in our lives. This is the culture that we live in, men and women. And I think what Kohelet is trying to help us to see is that we can use these things of the world that were meant to be gifts from God as a kind of perpetual noise that distracts us from having to pay attention to the deeper poverty and emptiness of the lives we're living, whether it be in our own lives or in the lives of our friends and our neighbors around us. When we started this series, uh, the second round, I introduced you to the book called Present Over Perfect by Shauna Nyquist where she kind of talks about this journey of rediscovering the value and the meaning of life, and as she describes it in the subtitle, leaving behind a frantic for a simpler life and more a soulful way of living. And in her chapter on tunnels, she describes part of her journey this way. She says, in the last few years, there have been, in some moments, a thread of inner violence inside of me. In some moments, I feel such profound self-hatred that the terrible darkness bleeds out into everyone around me the way that darkness does. And then at one point, the volume of that inner violence started to scare me. I could recognize it as separate from me, not built on the true materials of my life or my circumstances, but more like a curtain dropping or a virus infecting everything. If anything, maybe it became more visible 
once I started to slow down a little. Maybe it's part of the reason that I was running. I chose to outrun and overstuff my life to avoid the darkness. No wonder silence terrified me. No wonder I ran from activity to activity to activity. I still didn't understand the solution, but more clearly than ever, I understood the problem. The hustling that had so deeply compromised my heart was an effort to outrun the emptiness and deep insecurity inside of me. I used to believe in the deeper way that there was something irreparably wrong with me and love was a lie. Now I'm beginning to see that love is the truth and the darkness is a lie. I'm thankful for that day when the violence inside me became profound enough to shake me into new solutions. That's how we grow, it seems. That's how we finally submit ourselves to the miraculous. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, even Provence says it this way, he says, methods of escapism often take, us, take on religious overtones as a way out from under the crushing weight of a world that defines our humanness in terms of our economic usefulness and productivity or our ability to climb the perceived social ladders of success and approval, and yet can tell us nothing about what it all means and where we can find genuine peace and lasting satisfaction. In reality, all these escapist behaviors are attempts at creating sacred spaces, he says, where we can transcend the normal, toilsome, and oppressing spaces that we regularly occupy and find a respite and a balm that can heal our pain. Isn't that what we have been taught the gospel message is all about? And yet somehow we think that we can manage life better, that we can control our lives, that somehow we are supposed to have the wisdom and the knowledge and the ability to be able to manage our needs and to take care of ourselves. And yet why, even as Christians, do we continually find ourselves dissatisfied, unhappy, and out of control? You see, biblical faith is anything but escapist though some people would accuse us of using religion as a crutch and having religion be the very thing that we're talking about as a way of escaping the reality of life in this world. Biblical faith doesn't advocate the evacuation of the mind in the face of unpleasant realities or the embracing of fantasy in the face of harsh experiences or the increase of both noise and activity to fill the silence that frightens us. In fact, just the opposite. The healing of our inner pain and brokenness and the darkness that, that, that shadows our souls, the Bible tells us, requires us to, to look them face to face, to look them in the eye and confront them through the power of the Spirit at work within us rather than to seek to escape from it. And of course, Kohelet tells us that one of these stark realities that can help to focus us on the right way is the reality of death. And so the teacher invites us to embrace that reality and all the harsh realities of life in this world rather than to push it away from us or to deny it or to run away. He invites us to allow these difficult facts, these difficult truths of life to do their work in us, 
to become wisdom that helps direct us to the kind of lives that we need to be living, which in the end necessarily points us beyond ourselves as where we need to go to find meaning and purpose and value in life. It's the person who joins this insane race after wealth and possessions and gain and control in life who compromises their integrity in the process and who becomes just as much of a fool as those who join with those who spend their time feasting and in laughter and seeking pleasure. In verse 7, he says, extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than the beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. You see, our understanding, he says, of the end of things should be more determinative of our choices and our behavior than the beginning of things. And this means that we begin to adopt a more patient approach to life as it is today. A wise person will not react in the heat of the moment, but will take a longer view of things, waiting to see the full measure of a matter before deciding how to respond. It's the foolish person who arrogantly and angrily makes immediate judgments and responds too quickly. Proverbs 12, 16 tells us, fools show their annoyance at once but the prudent overlook an insult. Or Proverbs 14, 29 tells us, whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. He uses this analogy here where he says, essentially a short, short-tempered anger is like a needy child that, that, that sits on the fool's lap and is in constant need of nursing and cajoling. <laughs> And the reality is that the teacher is trying to zero in on to help us get down to the brass tacks of how we can understand what he's challenging us to do is that it's our dissatisfaction with life as it is today, life in the present, that leads us to an attitude of impatience and frustration and short-temperedness. And to consider uh, how things were better in the past than they are today. Because that keeps us looking backward to things that, that, that we had control over in the beginning of things rather than focusing on where we're heading and the end of things and where God is leading us for the future. See, in wisdom, comparing the past to the present has little value because even if it was better, it's not going to help you enjoy life today. It's just going to keep you unhappy and dissatisfied. Wisdom tells us it's better not even to ask such questions. On the contrary, in verse 11, he says, Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. It benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. See, wisdom, he says, does have value, not only for leading us to experience the good life in the present, but like a financial inheritance, it is also a benefit for those who come after us. It can be handed down from generation to generation to generation. 
It brings a lasting benefit to those who receive it, and it's something that can be shared through wisdom with others in the same way that money can be a shelter from the harshness of the economic realities around us. Wisdom has the advantage over money because it actually allows the person to begin to enjoy the life that they have. So to embrace wisdom, he says, is to embrace life itself. And as it is today, along with all the gifts that can be bestowed by God. Now, if we translate this into the New Testament, we can see quickly in Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes, and we don't have time to go and read them all, but, but the Beatitudes are a phenomenal expression and expansion of Kohelet's teaching here. Right? In this larger context of the New Testament, we see that it's those who mourn now that will be comforted. It's those who refrain from grasping after the gain of life and instead adopt the attitude of the poor and the meek that will actually inherit from God the things that we have sought to possess and control. It's those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and who are merciful to others rather than hungering after success and power that will be filled with all the good things that God has in store. You see, the, the serious way of life that Kohelet and Jesus recommend is not a way of joylessness and oppression. Instead, it's a mature and a wise and a deep way of looking at life in this world that lives life with honesty and truth and acceptance that's lived out in the presence of the God of goodness and grace and mercy. And it's the blessed ones who mourn now, Jesus says, that are already invited in the end to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so we know as we look to the end of things, even death is not the end. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we know that our death is only a graduation into the life that God has planned for all of us. Where when we get to heaven and we gather around the feast of the Lamb, there will be neither male nor female. There will be no slave or free. There will be no distinctions that our human desires separate us because we're all competing for life in this world. Instead, we will all receive the gift of life together as the gift from the Lamb who gave his life for us. I wish I had more time this morning. We'll pick it up next week, but I want to wrap up today by focusing in on how we can understand that Jesus also came to show us this way, that the path to life is a path to life after death, that it passes through the valley of death and both the reality of our own inevitable death and the comprehension and acceptance of death for us, even though it's an inescapable part of life, Jesus came and entered into the life that he experienced with us to show us that even our own death is not the end. By contrast, we who choose to walk in darkness when we deliberately put ourselves in places where we don't face these hard truths and to see this wisdom and prefer instead to bow down on the altars of our modern pseudo-sacred spaces, seeking to escape from life in this world, to save us from the darkness around us, and if we're honest, the darkness that's within us. All the while, the Bible tells us, that there is a knowledge and a wisdom of the good life that can actually be gained in this world. And that benefits not only those who are alive today, but those who come after us. And so men and women in this season of Lent, where we have begun to journey with Jesus again to the cross, 
we're invited to remember and to contemplate and to reflect on how in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that he has become the light of the world. He has become the wisdom that guides us to accept our own realities in life and to see all of life as a gift from God. And in the words of Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. May it be for you and for me in this season that the light of Christ becomes the light of wisdom that allows us to face every challenge and be willing to allow His Spirit to transform us from the inside out. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God of wisdom and grace, a God of truth and mercy, that You invite us to live open-hearted and open-handed with an honest view of the life that you've given us to live. Give us the courage, God, to face our own pain and our struggles rather than to seek to escape them. And in the midst of facing those challenges, even the reality of our own death, God, help us to find you in those spaces. Give us the courage to make those changes that we need to accept life as it is, as a gift from you, to find joy and meaning and satisfaction in our day-to-day walk so that we have a blessing to pass on to our neighbors and our friends and those around us, that there is a way to find peace and satisfaction in life as we live in relationship with you. And we will thank you and praise you for all that you do in us today and forevermore. Amen.